thanks for the introduction and thanks for having me give this presentation to to your group. Um, thank you for bringing me back after a number of years. Uh, the topic here that I'm going to talk about is called specialization, myopia syndrome, and the content journey. And uh, this is really a topic I've been exploring on my blog for the past year, uh, off and on. Uh, I want to just introduce a little bit about why I got interested in this topic in the first place. Um, some months ago, uh, somebody asked me to present on trends. And, you know, I've already, I, I'd given so many presentations on trends that I was feeling a bit contrary, and I didn't want to give yet another presentation on trends. So I decided to to explore non-trends, things that, that were once trends, but then fizzled and, and were, were just like no longer a thing people do. So I created a, a survey on my blog listing about 15 to 20 different things that I thought people were, I don't know, that might be fizzled trends, things like... Uh, wikis or uh, help authoring tools or uh, certain practices around uh, information disclosure, progressive information disclosure, and so on. And time and again, everybody sort of checked the mark saying that, yes, uh, I'm still doing this. This is still going strong. Um, this, is, this isn't a trend that has fizzled. And it got to be ridiculous to the point that I would I would say, okay, let's find at least something. And I was like, surely nobody is still producing chum files. And like within five minutes on some interactive chat, somebody was like, I just produced a chum file for a client this morning. I'm still being asked for them. And I was like, this is, okay, this is ridiculous and kind of mind-blowing. And I didn't know what, what to make of this. Like, how is it that everything that was ever a trend is still like a trend is still available and, and in some capacity still functioning. Um, I'd heard similar things about products, like everything that's ever been a product you can still buy in some form or fashion. Uh, but this got me thinking like, okay, so what does this mean if there are no fizzled trends? And sure, some technology supersedes other technology, but in general, uh, what, would, what would we conclude if everything that was ever a trend doesn't really fizzle out, but just sort of gets added to an ever-growing collection of practices, tools, techniques, uh, increasing the sort of technical diversity and options available? Um, and that's that's what got me got me started on this, and I was like, that is a really intriguing topic, uh, and, and it <clears throat> sent me about exploring non trends and uh, the these sort of technology trajectories that we have. So let me jump into the agenda outline and, and my main argument that I'll be talking about today. So the the bullets on the right are the main topics. I'm going to talk about technologies, trajectories, the impact of specialization on docs, opportunities opening up as a result, five ways to focus on big picture docs as a tech writer, and some realizations and takeaways. And my main argument is basically this. As technology becomes more specialized, 
big picture narratives are becoming lost. And this gap opens up opportunities for tech writers. So uh, th this is actually kind of a really interesting argument and topic and, and one that uh, you know is not without many, many challenges and nuances here. But since I have ample time to kind of get into and and describe the context of this of this whole argument and, and the topic, um, we're gonna go through and build this up. Also, because I know that it's very difficult to sit and watch a presentation for so long, I've included a lot of kind of questions that are hopefully will bring out more interaction into this presentation. Well, let's start with technologies trajectories. Um, there's this quote that I was I was reading in various books, or I kept seeing in various books, uh, by Karl Marx, uh, the famous philosopher economist. And he, the quote is, the windmill gives you society with the feudal lord, the steam mill society with the industrial capitalist. And the idea is that certain structures give rise to certain outcomes. Like if you, if you have a windmill, um, then it, it naturally follows that society is going to develop around these feudal lord systems. Or if you have steam mills, you're going to end up with industrial capitalists and so on. Um, now, I'm no expert in that, that area, but it was an intriguing thought that like maybe you can sort of see the future based on your current conditions. Uh, the patterns that, that are in place now give rise to what will eventually be the outcome. And I, as I was reading this, I was going through, the, through this techno-skeptic phase where I was like renouncing my smartphone and trying to like go off offline more. Um, and I was, I was convinced that like, okay, because so much information on the web is free, that means the inevitable way that people monetize is through ads. And what happens when people monetize through ads? Well, then you have this whole attention economy develop where people are tr constantly trying to hijack your attention. And what happens when you have that, that attention economy, people's attention spans get fragmented and so on. I was like, is it really possible to sort of trace out the, the outcomes based on your current conditions? It's a really intriguing thought. And then so uh, there's another book that I had been hearing about for a while. This book called um, What Technology Wants by Kevin Kelly. And Kevin Kelly is a, he's really, really interesting figure. He's like one of the, one of the early internet leaders. Um, he was, he's co-founder of Wired, but even before that, he was involved in an effort called the Whole Earth Catalog, which is some kind of catalog of tools to empower people against uh, other, other uh, I don't know, I, I don't know how to best describe it. Anyway, it was kind of like a, a techie hippie thing. Um, but anyway, so in this book, Kevin Kelly... <clears throat> He outlines, it's a fascinating read. He's talking about technology and he describes it as, as almost like a, a growing biological organism that, that was first observed maybe a couple hundred years ago in different places. He says, you know, people didn't always just have the word technology and, and think of this as a concept. It was like, sure, people have had little devices, you know, little inventions here and there, but Technology is something that started to grow. Um, 
especially once the Industrial Revolution hit, uh, and become more more visible in places, and people started to talk about it more and more uh, just in, recently in the last century and so on. Um, and and he, the ultimate question he's trying to decide in this book is, well, what's, what is the ultimate aim and trajectory of technology? What does it want? What is its predicted outcome? And he concludes that, well, technology is, it kind of wants the same thing that, that most life wants. It wants to expand and proliferate and sort of consume the earth. He describes around uh, eight, eight or nine different clear trajectories that he sees in technology. Complexity, diversity, specialization, ubiquity, freedom, mutualism, beauty, sentience, structure, and evolvability. And he talks about each of these in really compelling ways. Uh, the, the three that jumped most out at me, jumped out at me most, were complexity, diversity, and specialization. Uh, the 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 whole like diversity thing, and, and when he's talking about diversity, he's talking about like technical diversity, like the number of options available. Um, that's a really fascinating one. He talks about uh, like, for example, if you think of a shoemaker, uh, initially, if you had just one shoemaker who, who was an artisan who could make the shoes from start to end, it would take that shoemaker like uh, a long time to make a pair of shoes. But as people sort of got smarter about production, they, they had a crew and each person would specialize in different areas of making the shoe. Some people would build the heel and others would do the stitching and others would, would do the sole and so on. And when you started to specialize the roles, the number of shoes that, that people could make increased. And then as people built factories where you didn't even have humans that needed to get involved, uh, you could produce even more shoes, right? So as, as specialization of roles has, has become a best practice, so has the number of shoes that could be produced. And now, uh, if you go to Zappos, he said, and this, is, this book is like 13 years old, he says you have like 90 different thousand options for shoes or something. Whereas, you know, many, many hundreds of years ago, you had just a few different shoe options. Um, this, this specialization is giving rise to abundance. Uh, there's a lot of, there's references to the wealth of nations and how the specialization is what gives us, um, it sort of unlocks this, this wealth. Uh, but if you think about it, like today, he says, uh, even in our house, if you were to count the different types of things in your house compared to what was in a house uh, a thousand years ago, it would be mind blowing. He started counting all the items in his house and there were like 30,000 different types of things in his house. I mean, he's not just counting every fork, but like a fork and a spoon and a knife and, and different kinds of utensils and plates and everything uh, in your garage and so on. Uh, it, it's sort of like kind of crazy to think how many different types of things we have um, that that just wasn't part of life hundreds of years ago. And why is it? Well, in part because of this function of specialization that allows so many different uh, groups to produce more, more things, more types of things, more varieties of things. Um, and, and it's giving rise to this, this diversity. Think also about like mobility. 
used to be that you you had a car and maybe a bus and a train and now you you have so many different options you've got like five scooter options e-scooter options in a city in in e-bike options and and car sharing options uh different companies and so on uh for each of them as well as uh your own plethora of vehicles that you can choose from and and so on and different routes and different ways of getting from point a to point b um So the question, as I was going through this complexity, diversity, specialization, um, I started to wonder, well, what is the inevitable conclusion as a result of these characteristics? Uh, As far as complexity, that one's a little more straightforward, but he talks about how, you know, scientifically, the world started as a, like a quark, and then you get a subatomic particle, and then it grows into an atom and then you have a cell and a little organism and it gets more and more complex until you have you know, conscious humans and so on. Um, it, this complexity is apparent in every aspect of, of the world. Um, complexity <coughs> around uh, not just you know physics but around ideas. He includes ideas in, in this in this group of uh, growing he calls it the technium. It's growing technology, the ability to manipulate thought through language and expand our ideas through through printed books and so on, mass distributed, and, and the growing collaboration of ideas uh, is also something that's increasing in complexity. So the question is, um, what outcomes will naturally follow as technology gets more complex more specialized and more diverse. Um, so this is a, a part where I'm, I'm trying to, I would love to sort of uh, get your thinking wheels turning. Um, so so you, can, you can use the meeting chat or you can use, you can even unmute if you want it, but use the meeting chat maybe mostly and just, I don't know, throw up an idea. What, what's the natural outcome of increasing specialization, especially as it relates to maybe tech com. I'll give you a minute to, to think about this. Okay. And I want to kind of focus more on like the impact of specialization on docs. There's an article I was reading, uh, by, by an economics professor, John Davis called specialization, fragmentation, and pluralism in economics. And just one little quote, he says, researchers have a decreased understanding of research programs outside their own, operate in relatively isolated research niches, and it is less and less clear what unites research programs and makes economics a single discipline. So he's focusing on economics, but it applies obviously to other disciplines too. And this this person is kind of saying, hey, how is specialization changing the field of economics? What's happening is that all these little sub-disciplines are starting to crop up. Uh, they're breaking apart into little tiny, little from one big planet to lots of little planets. Um, and they're sort of operating in their own world, uh, asking their own questions. And it's less and less clear, like they don't all, they're not all trying to answer the big questions that used to unite economics as a discipline. Uh, and, and as a part or as a result, they're sort of breaking apart and creating just these separate, separate sub-disciplines. 
Um, we see this happening in tech com. Uh, it used to be, I don't know, 20 years ago that you were essentially a tech writer or, and that was, that was what you did. Now there's lots of different flavors of tech writers. You've got, you've got the whole UX writer subdiscipline, which, you know, it's like their own, they're, they're a different group. They've got different concerns and different topics. You've got the content strategists. There's, they're sort of broken off into their own group. They've got their own conferences and everything. Um, you've got the tools people who are, uh, you know, have separate concerns as well. They're mired in, in complex tool chains and transformation technologies. And even among the tools people, there's huge differences. You've got docs as code people, you've got XML people, you've got content management system people. Uh, I guess the XML and the content management are more closely combined, but, um, you definitely have different, different groups. Um, <clears throat> what else among the tech com people? You've got a group of, of editors, you know, you've got, uh, people who are, are focused on maybe life sciences, uh, more than like high tech and other people focused on, on different things and, and all these little subgroups, right? We still put them under the larger umbrella of tech com, but in a lot of ways, so much of the content becomes less and less relevant to the larger group. I remember going to STC conferences years ago and uh, kind of being blown away by the fact that there were 10 concurrent tracks going on at the same time. And I was like, wow, you know, surely this is going to be fascinating. And then, and then being sort of perplexed that, that not a single sort of uh, presentation or session was really appealing to me in that session of 10 concurrent tracks. I'm like, how can this be? <laughs> you know, one was focused on translation and another was focused on like video production and something else. I'm like, ah, wait a minute, I'm not doing either of these, you know, and, and it was another maybe was an academic topic, um, you know, academic methodologies or research or something, who knows. Um, but it just goes to, to show that we've got all these separate niches that are starting to operate independently as a result of this specialization. Another um, uh, outcome of the the impact of specialization is increasing comprehensibility. This is a quote that I pulled out of a book uh, on systems, systems thinking. The quote is by John Raston Saul, a political scientist. He says, rational elites know everything there is to know about their self-contained technical or scientific worlds, but lack a broader perspective. They have a common underlying concern how to get their particular system to function. Meanwhile, civilization becomes increasingly directionless and incomprehensible. And this, uh, this quote, um, when I read it in the book, it didn't have any context. I'm like, wow, this is kind of really interesting. And it comes from this book by this guy, uh, uh, Saul, who was writing against this rising trend of rationalism. And he's pushing back against the idea that rational logical thought is the only way that we can know things. And he, he's kind of like trying to raise awareness of different ways to know. Uh, and the, he's saying, look, these people who are so steeped in, in, in their own little scientific or technical worlds, they've developed their own jargon and they're no longer like interoperable. You have one person, uh, who 
Like they can't even really talk to each other anymore because their their jargon is so specific. And and this is definitely an outcome of increasing specialization is that you've got increasingly specialized terms and those terms sort of lock people out of your discourse. And if people can't speak your discourse, they can't really interact with you. And it, it reinforces this sort of siloed isolation of the different people. Um, you know, if I were to go speak at even a UX writers conference, I don't even know the right terms uh, that would make me sound uh, would that would allow me to plug into their their topics. Um, probably the same with many others, content strategy, localization, even within the same <coughs> discipline. It, there's just this increasing incomprehensibility. And even um, if I were to try to write an academic article, <laughs> there's an example where there are really highly defined structures, formats, uh, conventions, expectations, discourse. And um, anyway, this is all an outcome of this increasing specialization of these different roles. This this book, oh, this quote, by the way, comes from this book called Voltaire's Bastards, I believe, uh, which is apparently a really long uh, diatribe against this. Uh, I haven't read the whole book, but um, at one point I will get into it. Okay, so um, now what about the impact of specialization on a developer portal or a doc portal? Uh, What I see are building blocks, but no picture of what you're building. You, you get the how, but never the why. You, there's no larger story, no customer journey, no enterprise context. You know, how does this product differ from others within your same company? Or how does this product differ from others within the larger domain outside the company? You know, there's no context. It's just like, hey, here's this product. Here's this API. This is what it does. Um, there's site fragmentation. You've got one doc portal for this group and another doc portal for another group. And many times you're just shipping the org chart, meaning uh, one org likes to have their own doc portal. A different org has a different doc portal because the the same uh, organization lines are manifest in the way the products are differentiated. And they're all sort of st- siloed from each other. It's like one group works on their their doc portal or their their little kingdom another group works on theirs and they don't really interact because they don't have a need to um it can be even as embarrassing as as realizing at some point that the two groups have named um an api the same or they've got a similar similarly named product and it's unclear even to the people within the company what the why the company has two duplicate products or why there's redundancies how they differ uh, and the documentation clearly doesn't like elaborate either. Um, I, I don't know if this, you know, hit rings a bell or, or hits any points of relevance. It's more true in some companies than others, but this is something I've noticed in, in different companies I've worked for where the developer portals just sort of take on this, this, uh, increasing incomprehensibility, um, you know, making sense only to the specific partner that maybe they were designed for and no like awareness and integration into the rest of the information into any kind of coherent story and journey across it. Um, now documentation also begins to start to become specialized as well. And, and part of this is because docs just mirror the same perspective that engineers have. 
you know, engineers, they're, they're often too specialized to communicate a larger picture to tech writers. They, they're fixing a, a bug about a certain data point or something, uh, you know, and they understand a very small sliver, like we need this documented. So they reach out to the tech writer who documents, you know, the same understanding as the engineer. And uh, so then the documentation begins to reflect the same engineering specialized perspective and you never sort of break out of this tunnel vision syndrome of just looking at, oh, this is what this data is. Not like, well, how is a, how is a partner using this data? Or what's this larger API for? Or how does this fit into a developer journey? Like what, what's this larger story? It just sort of gets lost. Um, and there's not a lot that tech writers can do because if our main source of information is the engineers, then we're basically just sort of regurgitating and, and and putting uh, into articulate language their understanding of things. Another challenge is that this larger story starts to become missing based on the whole development process of Agile itself. You know, Agile is this response to the complexity of developing a product that meets a user's need. In, in the waterfall approach, people spent like two years just working heads down on a very defined set of requirements that were upfront uh, uh, defined with um, the customer and so on. Uh, and people realized, oh, by the time the two years is up, we've strayed way off course, so let's just develop in two, two week increments and check in regularly to see if we're on track. So you end up with sort of a, an external partner or external customer being a, a co-developer in this process. Well, if that's how you develop your products, They'll probably be more aligned with the customer, but that customer that it's developed with no longer needs this larger story because they're like heavily contributing into the code development. And once the product is done, uh, there doesn't seem to be a need for an overview. The, the, the partner just needs like the tech notes on how to use it um, because they, they understand the purpose for which they, they defined it. But then as you try to, to break out of that one-to-one -one development path and do a one-to-many application of, of the product, all these other partners that weren't co-developers are suddenly lost. They're like, wait a minute, what's the larger story here? Like, why, why does it work like this? They don't have that whole context. And by, by the time the product's launched, the tech writers probably moved on to other uh, projects. There's also an impact on engineers. I, I find that engineers... They seem more, more and more quick to just draw boundaries around what they know and need to know. Uh, if I'm asking them information about a project and I try to, you know, poke their brain for some larger information, they they're often, you know, point me to somebody else, or they'll be like, you know, I just want to know exactly, or I just want to <laughs> discuss exactly this component or widget that that I I made, um, not elaborate on how it fits into things. Uh, this syndrome of working on a widget rather than a larger product is a key theme in, in systems view thinking. Um, and, and as people sort of become alien, alienated from their product outcomes, you know, they're just working on a widget. I'm just working on this data attribute. I'm just working on this one tab. Um, the work sorts of, sort of loses meaning. Uh, I think that's a, a Marxian concept about the alienation of labor and so on. But definitely if you're, if you're writing docs and you're no longer uh, focused on a larger outcome 
you're just like, hey, I'm updating this paragraph about this piece of data, then work becomes a lot less meaningful. And as everybody starts to have the same perspective of focusing on just their little part, their own little widget, and, and they lose track of this whole, um, there's an absence of responsibility. If something fails, if the product flops, they're like, well, I did my part. You know, I, my widget worked or uh, this service was functioning. And, um, you know, there's less of a sense of responsibility and purpose about the whole thing. You've, you've seen... I don't know if it's correlated, but tech worker burnout is, is not a theme that hasn't been pretty constant. The impact of tech writers is also prevalent. Roles are shifting away from authoring due to how complex a lot of the content is. Uh, there have been many times in the past where developers have an update. It's really complicated, and we'll just say, can you take a stab at it? Like, can you just write the write the update and we'll uh, edit it you know and these these other roles that that tech writers play editor publisher curator they're also sort of diminishing in importance especially with this whole emergence of ai tools now if it used to be that like our language editing was was highly prized and and you can see almost overnight that suddenly ai tools can can replicate articulate language uh, I was just playing around with something called word tune, spicy word tunes and others to rewrite paragraphs that are awkward. I'm like, ah, oh, dang, you know, so all the, the developers who struggled with English, now they've got a lot more powerful tools. And then publishing has also become much more simplified, at least in a lot of big tech companies. They follow Docs' code that's highly, highly uh, similar to... Um, the same workflows that the software developers use. They're writing in their in, in text, in their IDEs, their, their uh, developer environments, and they're, they're submitting uh, through processes like Git to do version control. You know, and the whole thing is, is very similar to them. There's no longer this need for an expert in a certain publishing tool that, that only the techcom group knows. And then curation. Well, you know, our ability to organize topics in a sidebar and to group things logically uh, sort of becomes less and less important as we drown the document portal with so many articles that there really is no organization other than search. And as search gets better and better, you don't need as much cur curation. So uh, this has kind of a uh, depressing impact on, on the tech writing role as well. This leads me to my next interactive question here. How has increasing specialization, complexity, technical diversity, how has it changed your role as a technical writer? Um, so let's take a minute here, reflect on this, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to glance at the chat and see what I can read here. All right. Um, uh, the, the larger direction here I've been going is to make this argument that the big picture narratives are becoming rare. Um, and, and here are a few more specific ways that, that we're not seeing this larger story anymore. Uh, detailed product overviews are becoming less common. It's like a two-paragraph two overview now in many products, and let's barely get a sense of what it's about before it jumps into the how-to. The architectural overview that would kind of have a diagram of how things 
function and interact is often missing. Uh, the system overview, like how a product fits into a larger system is often not there. Uh, the developer journey, you know, how what's the, the developer's path through a product suite to implementing something is often missing. End-to-end -end workflows from one product to another, especially if those products cut across different parts of the organization is often missing. Any kind of context within the larger domain, especially even just like within the enterprise, how does this product compare with other products within the same company? Or uh, if you're able to compare it with products outside the company, that's often gone. Um, a life of a something narrative uh, is rarely present. This is a document type that sort of traces a path through various workflows and services and so on. So all these product stories, comparative analyses, uh, it's becoming lost as people become more granular and specialized and focused on very specific things. I had an example the other day that I, that I really liked. Um, my daughter came home, she's a senior in high school. She came home, she was supposed to be reading Macbeth and she was like really frustrated because this is the text that they had was very unhelpful. This is the text. On the left are footnotes that explain language points, and on the right is the original text. And the idea is they're supposed to read, and they hit a passage that's, or language that's unfamiliar, and then they, they go and uh, read the explanation in the footnotes. Well, uh, she was in tears because this was not working. I had no idea what the plot was or how it was, how it, how it, uh, had no idea what the plot was or how it was like <clears throat> um, how she was supposed to answer this long reading log of all these questions about the characters and the themes and their motives and so on. So my wife said, Callie, you're approaching this totally wrong. You don't just start reading Shakespeare like this. You, you need to start at the high level. So we watched a YouTube video called Macbeth in seven minutes which then gave her a very clear sense of like what the plot was even about. And then we dove into a little more detail um, with act by act summaries by something called English psycho, English psycho teacher. Interestingly enough, uh, this person has an amazing penchant for clarity and she would pull out key quotes and kind of get more into detail. Each of those acts was like five to eight minute summaries uh, of what's going on. And then there's also Cliff's notes that, that, I guess most students these days have never even heard of, but it's another way of getting into more detail. And only after you kind of go through this high level does the actual text make sense. Now that's with Shakespeare, but it's very similar to a technical topic. You don't just dive into um, you know, the, the nuts and bolts of some incredibly complex thing. Like let's say you're describing the open API, you know, you need to start at the high level and then kind of get more and more detailed. But without that big picture, like the experience is, is terrible for, for users. We, we need that big picture. Uh, another example I noticed um, from going into Ikea. Uh, if you've ever, ever gone into Ikea, the most the funnest part of the whole store are these showrooms that show how all the products might go together and complement and, and fit each other in a room. You know, you get a complete living room for under 1670, six, I don't know, however much the, all the 
items would cost. And, and of course, I don't think anybody actually buys all the items in, in a living room, but it's fun to see how the products fit together. Uh, and, and imagine like Ikea without the showrooms, it would just be aisle upon aisle of products that, that would be very boring. Um, and documentation is the same way. If you have kind of a showroom of, Hey, here's how this all fits together. Here's, here's like the bigger picture of how this works. It's way more interesting than just like, here's what this data attribute means. And here's this API and that API. All right, so I, I believe there are definitely opportunities opening up as a result of this specialization. Um, and what if tech writers were to exploit this gap? What if we were to say, look, if I zoom out and look at this big picture, there's a lot of opportunities for uh, contributing unique content that nobody else is doing, that nobody else can do anymore. This sort of contribution to write the larger story um, might be compared to building a skyscraper versus a doghouse. When I was back in, in creative writing school a uh, long time ago, somebody once asked uh, one of the professors, what's the difference between writing an essay and writing a book? And she said, writing an essay is like, it's like building a doghouse versus building a skyscraper. And that's what it's really like. You you might have to interface with a lot of unfamiliar teams. You might have to chase down a lot of different reviewers or read much more content, write at length. Maybe this is 6,000 plus words. Stay focused on a project for months. Um, that kind of work is, is harder because like, there's a certain high that comes from pushing out a, a doc change and and publishing it every few days you know we want to see progress and feel like we're doing something um, it can really be hard to to get bogged down in this larger story and the audience also changes anytime you're writing this larger story who then is the audience well you have people who are maybe doing internal onboarding they want to see how this new product fits into the larger scope of things or you have Perspective partners trying to understand the product scope. Cross-functional roles are kind of rare, but um, you know, business development, product management people uh, definitely need to have this view. And other generalists, and then senior managers are trying to execute strategies that kind of go across across um, different groups. But but the the run-of-the-mill worker who's just trying to fix a bug um, might not find this content relevant at all, which creates other challenges because, um, you know, if nobody's, nobody's asking for it, it's really hard to find the bandwidth to write it. Now I want to get more concrete here and provide five ways that you can kind of use big picture thinking in tech com. five very concrete things you can do. And, and I've done all of these different things. I didn't want to just make stuff, uh, or theorize about, about ways in my head. And there's probably a lot more. You mentioned the terminology thing, which is something I've completely missed here, but that's would be a very valid one to add. And, uh, let's see, I think I'm supposed to go till around eight 15 or so, uh, with some time for Q and a, um, but definitely could spend like entire presentations on each of these. And I, I won't. The detailed product overview is where I'll start. I think these are becoming 
more and more anemic product overviews. Um, <clears throat> I think a detailed product overview is one that's not just a couple of paragraphs, but one that includes like the use cases for the product, a high level architecture, an in-depth kind of overview of what the API is for, how it works, as well as like context that distinguishes the API, I'm using API, but whatever, the product within the enterprise. Like how does it differ from other products and and the, how does it like solve pain points in the industry? Now the product overview kind of overlaps with, with marketing overviews. So if you have those, you know, there's certainly uh, more, it's a lot trickier to figure out which gaps to fill. But if you don't, um, it's definitely a lot of opportunity here to, to do product overviews in more detailed ways. Um, gosh, looking at this slide, I'm like, man, why did I put so much text on here? <laughs> Let me just pull out a couple of uh, salient points. A product overview is, a, is something you, you don't write until you've basically written the rest of the documentation for a product because it requires you to understand the whole product. And, and that sort of high level view is something you, you don't get when you're just jumping into it. Um, I've got a whole section in my API doc course on product overviews. If you want to dive into that, definitely check out this, this link or just go to my API doc course. I've got like a sample list of what I think should be covered in a product overview. And, uh, the product overview is the most relevant and kind of easy place to start in terms of like digging into more detail. Um, let's look at a few less, less immediately apparent applications of the big picture developer journeys. This is um, kind of like the path. This is probably more developer centric, but like the path somebody takes in implementing a product and all the different like parts of that journey. Uh, I, I remember working on um, something like this when I was at Amazon. Uh, I would I wrote a a journey for developing Fire TV apps versus Roku apps. And I and I pulled out like eight different steps along the way. And it was like, okay, well first they're gonna, you know, they're gonna sign up and then they're gonna they're gonna build the app and they're gonna do that, then they're gonna be publishing the app and so on. I compared it each way between Fire TV and Roku and it was actually really fascinating. I was like, why didn't we have this before? It gives you a lot of, uh, it gives you a path that you can kind of hang content around in, in the structure and shape of your developer portal as you, as you tell this larger story. Um, some general notes. I noticed language totally differs. When you dig into a competitor's docs, it's like, oh, they use channel in a way that we're not. And you know, that's totally confusing. But once you, once you define this developer journey, it really makes it, uh, it makes it seem like when you didn't have it, how did you even function? Um, cause it, it really structures and grounds so many different things. All right. Another, another implementation is a cross system workflow. By this, I mean some kind of workflow that traces, traces, uh, uh, some path of information through different services. Um, I said about doing something like this recently that I titled life of a commute. It describes sort of everything that happens on the back end when you route to a place on Google Maps on your phone. All the different services that come into play. And there were like 20 different services. It was actually quite fascinating how it all worked. Um, uh, but uh, in writing this, I realized like whenever you have a workflow that cuts across different parts of the organization, uh, there's often there often aren't docs for this. Like most people 
draw the boundaries of their documentation with the boundaries of their team and, and their stewardship. But, but often products that are massive in scope have multiple teams and multiple parts of the org, and they're not just limited to, to one little group. So I stitched together uh, this workflow across many different teams and groups, and, and it was kind of fascinating. Um, again, this involves working with a lot of unfamiliar teams, didn't know me, you know, and then of course now I've got content that who knows when I'll need to update it, uh, cause I'm not in close contact with those teams. Um, but then again, sticking at this high level, uh, without getting too granular in details, wasn't that, wasn't that challenging. All right, integrated data from multiple APIs. This is another effort that I think is highly worthwhile. Um, uh, for example, let's say you have four APIs and they return like data, right? Well, maybe some of the data is the same or some of the data is, is highly similar. Um, how do you present it all in a way that the user can, can browse and navigate without re requiring them to just kind of go explore the Javadocs for each individual API. Uh, that sort of comprehensive list of data attributes that you get back or data that you get back can give uh, the user a one-stop shop in understanding the data. And that, that view is something that uh, no matter what kind of reference docs you have can be highly, highly valuable. Um, so many different teams have their own little slice of the data pie and you can bring it all together. Um, in working on a project like this, I realized that I didn't really need writing skills. I needed document engineering skills. Ended up creating templates and working with Jinja syntax and so on. Uh, and then trying to figure out how I was going to keep all this stuff up to date. All right, the last one is to, to develop external domain knowledge. All right, now, external domain knowledge, this is probably the most controversial of them all, but um, one thing I've experimented with is running a book club. You know, a group of people focused on reading a book a month about a topic that's relevant to whatever industry you're working in. Um, you can get very relevant, thoughtful discussions, and more than anything, books have um, the external perspective. How do other people view this product, this company, this space? You know, um, when we're working inside of a company, our view tends to be very kind of like uh, narrowly defined within the same company's perspective. And when you read books or, or, or magazines or journal articles outside your company, but within the same domain space, it can uh, present you with a lot of like new views and ways of looking at things um, in, in this book club uh, activity. I've read many books where I'm like, wow, I didn't realize, I didn't realize that people, you know, had that perspective or, and many times it can be challenging. Like, oh, that's a different way of thinking about things that I hadn't heard inside this company. Um, now the book club is a lot of sort of extracurricular because it, it doesn't, it doesn't tie directly to a documentation output, but it would make your group become, or, or would help you sort of give the impression from your group that you're a deep thinker, a broad reader, and more of a knowledge expert in the area, and that could be valuable. Um, this is something I mentioned briefly with the, the Fire TV Roku app thing, app example, but when you read from your competitors' docs and information, 
it's kind of very eye-opening. It's hard to sometimes get into that space, but just the whole language uh, element becomes like blown wide open. Okay, so I'm going to end it right here. Uh, I do have some more slides, but I wasn't sure how long I would I would need. It's kind of a long time to, to plan for. But this is my last question. Which of these document types have you written before? Why or why not? And what was the result? These are kind of uh, interesting categories of information that aren't often emphasized in the traditional techcom output that we produce. So let's see if people have um, any responses to what kind of what kind of content. Like, have you have you worked on anything like this? What was the outcome? Or if you haven't, why? Let me glance through the chat here. Um, Let me just uh, jump to one more slide here. The, the challenges that sort of crop up when you zoom out. Um, uh, ownership of documentation becomes thin. You know, readers change. Uh, it's almost like extra credit doc work uh, because a lot of people aren't asking for this. So it's there are really some challenges to solve. But I, I truly believe that, like, this is where our value can best be made manifest is, is when we zoom out, when we look at the big picture in some way, try to integrate things across different groups, uh, whether that's terminology, concepts, uh, what, as we, we try to understand the developer's journey or the user's journey and, and how our product fits in there, what are their milestones. These are things that more specialized workers are not focusing on. And, uh, and, and this value then will, sort of validate our role, but also just make, you know, a better user experience. So, um, that's all I, I had. There is a blog version that you can read on my site. It's the series called trends to follow or forget. It's still kind of rough and it's actually a whole big section on very specific trends that I was, I was exploring. But, um, this is, as I said, this is a series, um, that I'm exploring, trying to get better at at understanding the larger label is like systems view thinking and so on it's this idea that the sum is greater than the individual parts and the idea that uh, an impact in one part um, can have an outcome in many other parts but uh, thank you for attending you can read more on my site you can check out these slides if you want and uh, you can reach out to me through email in other forms I'm happy to continue the conversation and I really appreciate your input throughout the, this, this whole presentation. You've got many uh, uh, smart people who seem like they're well-versed in the value of this big picture and zooming out. So thank you.